I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Adam Morris. He's a psychologist who received his PhD from Harvard University, and he's currently a postdoctoral research fellow at Princeton University. Adam studies the overlap between decision-making and mindfulness, among other things. Adam, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you so much for having me, having me, other Adam. <laughs> we were in a lab meeting together once, and there was yet another Adam. So the three of us <laughs> made up like a super minority of the room there, and we all have some of the research interests as well. So you say you study the hidden underbelly of decision-making. What does that mean? <laughs> it means I thought of a... A sexy phrase to use for my website. <laughs> yeah. What what is that referring to? That sexy phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I was, you know, uh, my research has switched a lot um, over grad school. So I, you know, my first kind of half of grad school, um, I uh, was really studying decision making proper. Um, mm -hmm. You know, was looking at lots of kind of implicit mechanisms that that channel people's thought decision thought processes down certain paths um so for example like some of my early research was looking at the ways that people form habits over which goals kind of naturally come to mind in decision making um or how people form habits over which like decision options come to mind like if you're trying to figure out what to eat for dinner tonight you know, certain options just pop into your head. We were looking at things like, you know, um, how does uh, implicit habitual mechanisms that kind of make options that have been good in the past naturally come to mind, things like that. Um, Is that like an efficiency thing? Yeah, I think that's one way. To, I think that's one useful perspective on it. Um, it's probably if you were going to make an adaptive argument, you would make an efficiency argument. That's right. Um, I've gotten kind of skeptical in my life of adaptive arguments um, mm -hmm. for psychology, um, but that's definitely how we definitely how we framed it in the paper, <laughs> at least. Right. <laughs> okay, what what would be an unadaptive version of of this? It's like, well, um, right. Things can be byproducts, right? Where like, um, you know. Uh, certain kind of cognitive patterns evolved for other reasons and then as a as a downstream byproduct of that like a psychological spandrel sure 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 yeah 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 exactly exactly yeah um yeah so that was one kind of underbelly like hidden underbelly of decision making like implicit mechanisms that you're not necessarily aware of that are kind of guiding your thoughts down certain paths when you're making decisions. Were you thinking um, about free will at all when doing this research, either on the, there's like these implicit processes that influence our decision-making in unknown ways, or perhaps if yeah. you're stuck in habit, then it's like, and you're a creature of habit, then how free are you? Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it has, I think, I think that research has bearing on questions around free will. Um, I don't know if it is bearing around like free will in the like metaphysical sense, like are there uncaused causes or whatever, like that, that philosophical avenue, I, 
I think it's pretty unrelated to cognitive science, but in the kind of in weaker senses of free will, like um, were the choices you made the results of conscious processes, conscious deliberative processes or something? Yeah, it totally has bearing on that, right? Um, I mean, even when you do conscious deliberation over when you're making choices, like when you're thinking, if you're making dinner and you're like thinking through, oh, well, I have a guest who's vegetarian or whatever. So, you know, if you're, so I should, you know, not make chicken. Um, the, even when you're doing that kind of deliberation, the actual range of options you have that you could in principle deliberate about is infinite, right? You could, you could go to the grocery store and pick out any of 10 million foods. You could go hunt for your food that night. You could go dumpster diving for your food. But uh, even when you're doing kind of conscious, explicit deliberation, your mind is all implicitly filtering out almost you know 99% of the options you could actually think about. Um, and so even in the best case, when you're doing really conscious deliberation, there's still tons of unconscious processes that are framing that and situating that deliberation. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so two takes on that. One would be something like a very, at very early stages of your brain, do you think of these things, but then like you eliminate them from possibility before it like reaches full conscious awareness, but there is some actual brain processing that leads up to that elimination. And then the other one would be something like you are never even capable of thinking of these alternatives because you're biased in some way. Which one of those do you think it is? So, I mean, I think it has to be the first because, and we know that because in the right situation, your mind will think of, you will think of that alternative, right? Like if the grocery stores were all closed and, uh, you know, we were in a zombie apocalypse or whatever, and, and someone puts a gun in front of you and there's a deer sitting out there, you're going to consider, should I go hunting for my food tonight? Um, and so clearly you can consider that option. Your mind can formulate that. Um you know, whether it, uh, whether the representation was ever actually formed and then rejected versus, uh, like, was it somehow in a latent possibility space that was never activated in the first place? That's a harder question. I don't, I don't think we, I think it's going to depend a lot on the situation, but. Mm -hmm. Right. Because yeah. you could imagine that hunting is always considered an option by early brain regions, but it's just unconsciously rejected most of the time. And then you might also think something like, no, it never even comes up even to that unconscious space, unless you're in this apocalyptic scenario or some other yeah. environment that cues you towards thinking of hunting. Exactly, exactly. I think those are really hard questions that we don't have good answers to about how that works, but yeah. Huh. So your advisor was Fiery Cushman, who was on this podcast a while ago. And we talked a lot uh -huh about the role of intentionality in uh -huh. decision making and, and especially like the moral consequences of that because you could imagine that the actual decision from like an outside perspective looks the same yeah but depending yeah. on that intentionality you're going to judge it very differently so like you know you could you sure could sure a, an action that harms someone and like whether that was by an accident or not and how do you define accident like totally. one example he gave is maybe someone has Parkinson's and their hand is shaking and that shaking mm -hmm. hand like knocks something over like leads to this cascade of events that they didn't intend on versus like totally. someone actively totally totally yeah how does that fit in to this hidden underbelly oh, of to... decision making 
Like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a great, great question. Um, so there's a couple answers. I think one is that you know people's uh, folk concepts of intentionality do actually incorporate this understanding that um, there are habitual mechanisms which n naturally kind of make some things come to mind and not others. Um, so for example, my the my former fellow grad student, Arunima Sarin, who's in Fiery's lab, um, she's done a bunch of work on this. So the, the relevant concept here is neglect. So like, imagine that you forget your spouse's birthday or your partner's birthday or whatever. Um, like it wasn't that you deliberately thought, Oh, it's my partner's birthday, but I should ignore them today or something like it, that's not what happened. Rather, it just never, the thought never came to your mind. Um, people still judge that as wrong. Right. Um, or if you, you know, that's a, a mild case, but like, imagine you accidentally leave your infant in a hot car or something and they, they die of heat stroke. Right. Um, so pe people will judge those as morally wrong and punish them. And so Arunima's idea, which was so clever, is that um, maybe the the implicit logic behind why people are punishing them is because they know that if they punish them, it will actually change the options that naturally come to mind in the future. And so next, like if you punish someone, if you punish your partner for forgetting your birthday, then like they're going to be more likely to remember it next time. Uh -huh. And so. Uh, Arunima's proposal is that people's folk judgment, moral judgment, and incorporation of intentionality actually reflect an understanding that they can change which things naturally come to other people's minds. How do you apply that when it's something more rigid, like a character judgment? Like, let's say you have someone mm -hmm. who is chronically forgetful. You could see yeah, the totally. explanation going one of two ways. You could say something like, oh, that's just Adam. Who knows sure, which one sure. calling out here? <laughs> they, they forget a lot. <laughs> so uh, it's not his fault. But then also you could say something like, oh, this Adam is chronically forgetting things. So that just means he's a bad person. Or, you know, so it's like if okay. if it's a repeated pattern of behavior, I don't know if this would sure. would overlap with the habitual decision making stuff or not, but you could you could sure, interpret yeah. it with sympathy or not. Sure, sure, sure. I tend to think, I mean, this is going beyond what I actually, you know, out of my scientific area of expertise, but I tend to think of moral judgment as very practical. Um, like, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of moral judgment is uh, uh, kind of a, a, a thing that, that is um, purposeful or has predictable consequences. So like, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think that people, when they make those kinds of judgments about character judges, for example, about someone who's chronically forgetful, I think implicitly what's going on under the surface, a lot of the time is that they're judging whether they like, this is a person they want to keep interacting with or not, right? Whether, mm -hmm. or it's like, or, or in so, you know, social context, like, do I want to shun this person or do I want to kind of build coalitions against them or whatever? Um, yeah. And so my that would be my hunch about what's going on in those kind of cases. Um, Are you familiar sense? with this famous study on judges looking at sentencing decisions? And they found that the single biggest predictor on whether the uh, inmate would be let on parole or not was whether the judge had lunch or not that day. Yeah, I think I think that study ended up not being true. Um, oh, really? So it, w it was confounded. Um, 
because the the way the the court system worked, I think this was done in Israel. The way that turns out the way the Israeli court system worked is that the people would the people who set up the schedule would explicitly put people who were um uh with more serious you know who were less likely to go on parole to be granted parole closer to right before lunchtime. Um, so my, my 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 best understanding is that that is that that study people don't really has fallen into disrepute. Okay, that's that's good to know because I think I bring it up a lot. But, <laughs> but <laughs> it's such a sexy study. I mean, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I I think the question will still be worthwhile though. So let's imagine something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. was yeah. true or something similar. So sure. the, yeah, the judges obviously aren't going to say this is why they're going to mm. well. Yes, totally. Also, when people talk about this, assuming those results mm -hmm. were true, then they yep. they make it sound like the judges were rationalizing unwarrantedly. But now maybe the, mm -hmm. the rationalizations the judges made were actually accurate if if they reflected. <laughs> so the, so that sure, doesn't really but work. But, but there's going to be the idea other, is like when you're hungry, context, yeah, when yeah, you're yeah. hangry, yeah. you're probably yeah. going to be more irritable. But you might not even realize it's because of the hunger. You might totally. just be processing differently. Totally. So that's that's an example. Yeah. Like unconscious emotions yeah. that's influencing your decisions yes. at a much higher level yes totally yes no that kind of thing surely happens all the time for sure yeah yeah does that come up in your research at all does totally so the the kind of the the second half of my research journey so far the research that i got into later in grad school um was instead of trying to characterize what the uh unconscious decision-making processes were that people were using. What I got really interested in was on people's ability to uh, become aware of those processes, people's ability to, to introspect on what was actually driving their decisions. Um, yeah, and so on questions like, you know, if there's, you know, in, in implicit factors like hunger or whatever, biasing someone's choices, what are, can, is it possible for people to become directly conscious of that, of that happening? Mm -hmm. Like for someone to directly perceive, oh, I get it. Like, I see how the reason I said that thing in that irritable way was because I'm actually really angry. So that kind of leads to two different forms of mindfulness that you might be able to develop. One could be something uh -huh. like recognizing whatever is making you irritable or just messing with your rational decision-making process. Maybe you sure. still can't do anything about it, but you just recognize it. And then you're like, okay, I need to take a break and eat. And then I'll return sure, to my sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other one sure. would be something more like, I don't know, like cognitive control. Like they can not only recognize it, but they can stave yeah. off that like more lower level uh, emotional sure. bias that's like interfering with. Yeah, them. yeah, yeah. Do both of those exist? Yeah. Is that something you find in literature? So, uh, I mean, I should say nobody studies this besides me. <laughs> That's not entirely true. Obviously, obviously, people study cognitive control, right? But uh -huh. the specific question of introspection, of whether people can learn to introspect on their own choice processes, there is there are very few people studying this and very little that we actually know about it. Um, yeah, basically everybody just cites Nisbet and Wilson from the 70s and then calls it a day. Um, so I can speculate, you know, I'll speculate based on my experience, but there's very little actual science of this so far. Um, I'm sure both, my, my guess is both of those happen, like that there's going to be, um, 
you know, there, there's clearly going to be parts of people's choice processes that they're never going to be able to control consciously. Um, and that the only way to alter it will be things like, you know, manipulating your environments, like going to take a break or getting food or whatever. Um, I tend to think that there's more parts of people's choice processes that they can learn to control. Um, yeah, based on my background in meditation and mindfulness and so on. Um, but there's very little science of that. How does education uh, influence the, these introspective processes? So th th this is also a question you could break into two parts because there's mindfulness uh, education like meditation, which seems to be much more sure. about the practice, but you might not be yeah, like yeah, consciously yeah. labeling things. And then there's sure, sure, psychologists sure. do maybe even without any of the practice whatsoever, but it's like you learn about this yeah. new term like cognitive control or, and then you, you yeah, yeah. start to perhaps recognize it in yourself. Totally, totally. <laughs> and I guess you're most interested think, in the overlap between those two. Yeah. Um, I think like, I think, yeah, I agree with all of that. Like, uh, um, I think psychologists do way more, base way more of their science off introspection than they like to admit. Um, like, at least once you get above very low level things, like once you, you know, above vision or whatever, like anything high level, every, every, if you're ever sitting in a meeting with psychologists generating hypotheses, it's all 100% based on their introspection um, and their experience or whatever. Um, so I think people are, psychologists are doing this all the time. Um, I think people in the mindfulness world, it's much more than, it tends to be much more than just sitting there and focusing your attention. I mean, you know, there's basic forms like that, but um, there's lots of theories about what's happening and what you're doing when you're like, what, you know, what you can come to see in yourself, uh, in your mind when you do that. So I think, it, I think it's quite theory, it can be quite theory laden. Um, yeah, but the thing I'm most interested in research wise is trying to bring the psychological perspective, sorry, the, um, the, the scientific aspect of psychology to bear on these questions around introspection and around mindfulness. Um, like, uh, you know, I, I, I want to prove that you can, I want to prove scientifically that you can get better at introspection objectively. So there, there are a whole bunch of ways you could do that. The, the first that comes to uh -huh. mind is some sort of experimental manipulation, like you assign some group of people to like a meditation condition and others to a control or something else. Um, I'm guessing you do some experimental work. Um, and then, but there's also other methods that we could talk about, right? Well, um, if you know more methods, tell me. Let's, I, I actually brought that up because I'm not sure if your work is experimental or not. So if, the, if there's experimental <laughs> stuff, we can start there. And then if there's other stuff, we can move on there. No, it's all experimental. Um, okay. All my, all my science anyway, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you can assign people to either meditate or not. That's fine. But lots of people do that. The hard part in studying this is how do you objectively measure whether someone is is right when they're when they're introspecting like mm. if, if someone's trying to you know is introspecting on their choice process if someone tells you like oh i actually you know was irritable because i'm hungry or i actually interacted with this person this way because i was being implicitly affected by you know their gender or something like how do you verify that they're right how do you tell how do you tell 
objectively how accurate someone is, how accurately someone's actually introspecting. That's the really hard part. So how do you, or how how have you tried to go about that? <laughs> yeah, so the key is to build, um, you can build tasks and experiments where we can, as scientists, as, as researchers can get really precise measures of some aspects of what's going on inside someone's head. So, so here's an example. Um, imagine that we're, I'm gonna have you play a game. You're a participant in my study. And the way the game works is that, um, I'm going to give you choices, hypothetical choices between two homes that you could rent. So each home is defined by different features or attributes, like the size of the home, the location of the home, the quality of the kitchen, the amount of traffic nearby, right? And so on and so forth, a whole long list of these attributes that define each home. So I show you two of these and I tell you which one, I say, which one do you want? You choose one. Then I show you another two homes with the same list of attributes, but different values on those, like different sizes or whatever. And you make another choice. We do this over and over and over again. You make a hundred, you make like a hundred of these choices. What I can do based on your choices is I can pull out things, features of how you were actually making that choice, like how you were making those choices. So for example, I can tell statistically how much you were weighing the size of the home relative to other features in your choice process, right? I can tell, oh, like Adam was weighing size, you know, on average three times as much as they were weighing kitchen quality or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I could just ask you, I can be like, introspect for me. Tell me when you were making those choices, how much were you, uh, were you weighing size relative to kitchen quality, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I could just compare your self reports to the objective measures that we pulled out from your choices. And I can tell how accurate you were. How accurate Does or inaccurate do people tend to be in their own <laughs> decision making yeah, yeah. processes? So there's a, there's a huge range, which is fun. Um, so, th there's no, there, so there's never gonna be one answer to that question because it's gonna depend a ton on the person and the context and so on. In the studies we've ran so far, that, that use this kind of like artificial, you know, home decision, like choosing between homes task, for example. Um, we find that people are, well, we can say a few things. They're substantially above chance. So like way, way above chance in terms of accurate they are. So they're not just guessing. Um, on the other hand, many of them are imperfect. Some people are really quite, per like their, their results are really quite, you know, perfectly accurate, but there's many people who are, who are imperfect in their accuracy. Um, yeah. And so one of the things we're really, we've been really interested in is what explains that variation in accuracy. Like why are people, some people more accurate than others? Um, you know, is it because, for example, is it because some people have done things like mindfulness or meditation so that they have learned to, you know, focus their attention internally in yeah. some better way? Yeah, back to the experimental design idea. I guess what I was really trying to, to contrast was like, is experiments done on people? That that would be an example of like, you're giving them some sort of meditation intervention versus in, in your case, the yeah. experimental manipulation is on these variables, like on the, the attributes of the house that you're showing to people, right? Well, no, the plan is to run real experiments where we're, we're manipulating whether they, um, like whether they've, you know, practice what like we assign one group to practice meditation and the other group not to. 
Um, we're planning to run, to run real experiments like that. We just haven't done it yet because we've been spending so much time trying to, to just develop this measure mm-hmm. so that we can have an outcome to test. Like, does meditation actually improve, objectively improve introspection? And then are there also, like, theoretical or computational models that you're comparing it to? Like, I, I'm, well, I know that on the computational front, yes, but on the theory yeah. side, like, are you developing ideas of, like, what the ideal answer would be or something like that so you know we don't care it it, we don't care what choice processes people are using um right the 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 key question for us in this line of research anyway is are they aware of the choice process how aware are they regardless of what the actual like regardless of how they're actually making their choices can they can they introspect on how they're doing it accurately? That's the core question for us here. Um, yeah. Um, it, in terms of theoretical models of how that introspection could work or not, um, there's again very little science of this. So my my pet theory is around internal attention. So there's this, in, in in attention research, there's this classic distinction between external and internal attention. So external attention being like attending to things in your external environment, like, you know, I'm looking at you right now, I'm attending to you visually, or I'm looking around the room, or I'm listening to things. Um, and that's been like so well studied, tons of research on that. But there's also uh, this construct that people talk about of internal attention, of like, you know, I can turn my attention inward and focus on like, oh, is there, you know, focus on a, a mental image that I'm holding in my mind, for example, or focusing on um, memories that are coming up or whatever. So um, my my kind of pet theory of this is that uh, the way people, when you get accurate introspection, it's because people are, are um I've learned to uh, pay internal attention to like attend internally to the thoughts, the very fast fleeting thoughts and computations and representations that are coming up as they make their choices while they're still actually doing the task. So like, you know, they're still actually making their choices, but they've learned to pay enough internal attention while they're doing that to, to notice how they're making those choices. So I, I know you said you're skeptical of these adaptive arguments, but you, you might ask why aren't, we doing that all the time. Why aren't we all masters of mindfulness? Sure, sure, and, sure. And then the first answer might be something like, "Well, it's because it it's too computationally costly to constantly be looking inward." Sure, sure. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, surely, yeah, for sure. There's attentional costs. You know, there's computational costs of splitting your attention like that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't there's not necessarily strong adaptive in the, in the Darwinian evolutionary sense, there's not necessarily strong adaptive reasons to have better insight into your choice processes, um, like to have better introspection into them. Um, you know, it's useful to have things go automatically and it's useful to maybe deceive yourself a lot of the time about why you're doing the things you're doing in an adaptive sense. Um, in a kind of personal human sense, like, you know, a lot of people in the mindfulness or meditation worlds and also in other like therapy, therapy worlds and such um, often feel that their lives get way better from a kind of 
human perspective, um, when they learn to like attend and introspect on on their mental processes better. Mm-hmm. So Even then the flip side question is, why don't more people do that? Yeah, um, I think it's hard. I think it takes like effort and practice. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the, the biggest reason. It takes a lot of effort and practice. You know, um, attention is hard to control. It takes a lot of work. Um, I think it's also, there's also very difficult emotional things about it. Like it's often quite, it can be quite painful to to realize some of the things you're being influenced by or some of the ways you're making choices. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's, uh, it can be quite intense what you learn about yourself when you do that kind of thing. Um, and so I think there's lots of reasons why people wouldn't be ready for that or, um, yeah. So I think thus far we've been talking about mindfulness in the sense of introspection about your thoughts and feelings. What about somatic yeah. awareness? Mm. Yeah, I think I think somatic awareness and you know they often call it interoception, the word that fancy people use sometimes. Um, I think that's also super important. You know, when you go if you go to a meditation retreat or whatever, the the somatic awareness is heavily is often heavily emphasized. Um, and what is for that? good reason? I think. Yeah, so it's like noticing uh, subtle. It's noticing what sensations in your body. Um, it's noticing subtle muscle contractions. It's noticing subtle posture things. It's noticing, you know, uh, places your nervous system might be more activated or or less activated. Places where you have more um, haptic sensation versus less haptic sensation. Um, yeah, uh, all things like that. Noticing your breath and your heartbeat and all of those things. Is there a sort of sweet spot? Because there there are some people who get like sensory overload, which you could sure, imagine sure. is like somatic awareness taken to an unhealthy extreme. Sure. I don't know if sensory, I, I, this is, you know, I, I, I know very little about that kind of thing. Um, you know, I imagine sensory overload from what I understand of it, it maybe tends to be um, you know, from actual like external like sensation things like sight and sound and that kind of thing, rather than um noticing internal sensations going on. I'm sure there's people who also can get overwhelmed from noticing too much internal sensation. I think all of these things you have to be taken slowly. Like, you know, uh I don't think the right thing for everyone to do is to like suddenly go on a like you know month-long silent meditation retreat like stuff's very intense um so i don't know this all feels very individual to me like um in my life i found that the more somatic awareness i can have often the better i can feel um i think there's like uh, people need to balance that with lots of other things in their lives you know would you say that there's overlap between your research and that of delayed gratification like is the time point at which you receive the reward one of these variables that people that a is being considered in your decision making and then b people Mm. might be able to recognize or fail to recognize like how much heavily Mm. they how much more heavily they weight immediately immediate reward as opposed to like distant reward Mm. yeah it's a great question um 
I don't know of work on this. I mean, my, my hunch is that, you know, people often tend to at least talk about the ways that they're impulsive, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I know that I would fail the marshmallow test in a heartbeat, <laughs> at least with food. There's other, there's other contexts where I could be, I could be much more, you know, controlled, but with food, I would give it immediately. I feel like people, I don't know. My, my, my guess is if you ask people to introspect on that, they'd be quite accurate about it. Um, you know, in actual, in research where they study, you know, delayed discounting and that kind of thing, um, like in, in kind of econo the economics, behavioral economics world, um, I think they've, I think they often study it with self-report, like, which would you rather, you know, a dollar now or $10, you know, in a month or that, those kinds of questions. Right. In a sense, that's a, that's asking for a kind of self-report, right? Uh-huh. So the idea is if you can answer that question, then you probably can also answer the why did you answer it that way? I mean, there's different levels here. Like, you know, you could ask, can they introspect on the amount that they discount future rewards, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in some sense, that's just asking for like a single parameter in their choice process, you know? Um, there's, you could also ask them to introspect about deeper things, like, um, you know, what, what underlying computations or experiences or whatever are leading in discount rewards that strongly that way? Uh -huh. Depending on how you frame that question, I think the introspection is going to get way and way harder to do, you know? Yeah, that, that would be a, a cool area of overlap between what you're interested in and things that have already been done. Like there's, there's a lot of developmental research and also theory behind like what gives rise to risk taking and impulsivity totally, totally. during adolescence, which is the, the age range I study. And, and yeah, one yeah. pretty reliable finding is like, if you grow up in a more unstable environment, then, well, yeah. you, you take more risks, which is typically framed in a negative way. But the idea is like in an unstable environment, it could be adaptive mm -hmm. because like if you take the patient choice, like the, the two marshmallows that you're promised if you wait could just be gone and then you get nothing as opposed to if you, if you go out totally. right away. But then totally. the question is, do are people aware that if they're more impulsive, it might actually be because they're like thinking about the stability of their environment or not? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a super interesting question. Yeah. And it's totally the type of thing I'm interested in. There's another form of mental training that you mentioned, which is these rationalist approaches. What are those? Yeah. Um, so these are people who are organizations who um, do various types of mental training with an eye toward, it's kind of hard to describe. Like they, they have one foot in behavioral science. So these these types of organizations tend to develop mental trainings that are um, grounded in lots of behavioral science. And, you know, they, they'll cite research papers and they'll read, you know, Kahneman and Tversky or whatever. Um, and they're, they tend to be interested in uh, how do we help people be more rational? You know, they'll use concepts of rationality a lot. Like, how do we help people make more consistent choices? How do we help people make choices that are more aligned with their with their higher selves? Um, how do we help people reason better about probabilities and about risk and about uncertainty? Um, so I think there's a lot, there tends to be lots of overlap between what those rational approaches tend, tend to end up doing and more traditional forms of meditation and mindfulness. 
I think they actually end up looking similar in lots of ways, even if they use really different language. Mm -hmm. What are you most excited about in your research? Yeah, um, I'm really excited about like running an actual experimental study where we test whether meditation can objectively improve introspection. But that, that's kind of what I've been working towards for a long time now, because it's taken years to get this, to build up this measure of introspective accuracy. Um, and yeah, and we're, we're right in the process right now. We're, you know, in the, we're, right now we're in the process of applying to grants basically to get funded to do uh, a meditation study like this. Um, cause it's quite time intensive and resource intensive mm -hmm. to, you know, pay people to meditate a lot. Um, so that's the thing I'm most excited about. How big kind of what I long term would this be, this intervention? Oh, there's lots of versions of it. I mean, on the simplest end, you know, one of my collaborators has developed a 10 minute meditation intervention that you can do over the internet. Um, it produces small effects, but they are reliable. So that's the simplest version you could do. On the most intense version, you can study people who are about to go into like a three month meditation retreat, you know? Um, and there's been awesome studies done with that. Um, so, I, uh, we we have well, I don't know yet where we'll fall on that. We'll probably try to do both, like try to do a, a simpler ten minute intervention and also one that's more long term and intense. Um, yeah, but we haven't quite figured that out yet. And how long do the effects of the meditation intervention tend to last? You could imagine that as soon as you stop, then you sure. stop seeing the effects. You could imagine on the other extreme, like maybe it's lifelong, and then maybe an intermediate is like for those that continue it lifelong, then you see lifelong effects. But if you stop, then uh, then you stop seeing those effects. Sure. Yeah, it's a good question. I think it is going to depend a ton on what effects you're looking at, what the context is. Um, you know, a 10-minute meditation intervention online is not going to have lifelong effects. Um, you know, um, I think many people describe, you know, who do silent meditation retreats long ones as you know deeply changing them that's a really common thing people report um in terms of scientifically what effects we can measure long term it's really hard to say um you know i would put my money on if someone meditates for 10 years intensively like that's going to have measurable effects on their life um, at least for many, many years afterward, even if they stop, um, those effects might go down they, if they stop. But yeah. A while ago, I did a podcast with a psilocybin researcher, Manoj Das, uh -huh. And one of the, he's at Johns Hopkins. Uh, they have this whole yeah, center yeah. for psychedelics yeah. and consciousness. And one of the reliable effects there is that, well, there, so there's like placebos and then there's people who actually receive the drug, right? But even among yeah. people who receive the drug, there are some who don't report like these big psychoactive effects. And then you don't sure. see some of the outcomes you're looking at. So for example, uh, there was one study looking at personality changes after psilocybin mm -hmm. and they saw pr big personality changes in the openness dimension, but only among yeah, yeah, yeah. people who self-reported having a mystical experience. And you don't, you don't have to comment on, on any of the psychedelic stuff there, but the question is, is there like this, latent factor like if you engage in meditation you see the effects if and only if mm. you have like some 
subjective experience, so sim similar to to what happened in that study? I mean, yeah, it's hard to like. I, I don't think the analogy is an interesting analogy. I think there's there's things that don't map on there, like or that, that are hard to translate from the like. You know, in the in the psychedelics case, like I, I imagine for the people who don't have psychoactive effects, it's like nothing happened. You know what I mean? Like they didn't have a trip or whatever. Um, if someone's meditating intensively for a long time, it's hard to know what that would even mean. Like they're going to have subjective things happening. Like mm -hmm. by definition, that's what's happening when you're meditating, right? Um, is you're you're focusing your conscious attention on something, for example, if you're doing that type of meditation, mm -hmm. or you're noticing consciously what experiences that are coming up for you in, that, in another type of meditation. Um, so, you know, it's pretty, it, it, meditation kind of necessarily involves more of those experiences. Um, you know, do you have to have, you know, people who meditate a lot will report like crazy enlightenment experiences whatever where they saw you know their third eye opened but like, um i don't think you have to have that in order to um uh -huh. you know in order to have re really positive effects of it um i mean i certainly uh you know i did a lot of meditation and i had i had some kind of peak crazy subjective experiences um which were really impactful and i also just practicing it a bunch also like had a slow cumulative positive effect in my life also do you think there's something very unique about meditation and the, the type of focused thinking that you do there or is it is it really just the fact that you're spending time to like think and perhaps think about yourself like in other words are there things that you couldn't get from like therapy that you could get from meditation or is it is it really just the yeah. idea of the sustained process of like thinking with the desire of improving yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's a little tricky to answer because, for example, so much therapy at this point incorporates mindfulness stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, um, I I'm I'm not one of these people. I do, I don't think that meditation is like the only path. Um, you know, in fact, a lot of the meditation I did in my life was very non-traditional. Um, I did a lot of uh, social meditation forms where like it was, you know, we were meditating while having a conversation with each other where we were, where the conversation consisted of reporting what we were noticing happening as we interacted. Um, so that's a very weird form of meditation, you know, that's that's not just sitting, you know, on a pillow. Um yeah, I think there's lots of paths to to increase self-awareness um, that don't necessarily have to involve sitting silently for many hours with your eyes closed. Yeah. So let's close with this. Let's say you do your uh, meditation experiments. You find that people in uh -huh. meditation uh -huh. groups come out more self-aware, more introspective about their own decision-making processes. What is yeah. the big takeaway? What, what happens next from that? Yeah, I think... I think it would be huge validation for for mindfulness as a tool or meditation as a tool. Um, you know, if you actually go to a meditation retreat or read a meditation book or whatever, like they're not, most of them are not talking about, you know, oh, meditation will reduce your stress. Meditation will 
make you feel better. Like those things are included, but what, what they're more what they're talking about is like meditation will help you see what's happening in your mind um, in a way that you didn't before. Like those are some of the more core claims about it. And there's just been no science of that because nobody's tried to study this because it's really hard. So I think it would be huge validation for, for meditation as a tool to show objectively that it can improve introspection to your mind. Um, you know, if we can if we can show that, there's a ton of follow-ups, a ton of, you know, there's a whole lifetime's worth of research program in this. Um, things around like trying to understand what are the mechanisms by which that happens, um, both cognitive and neurally. Um, you know, uh, are there like, can we, can we optimize, can we get better and better interventions that are really targeted at improving introspective accuracy? Does, does introspective accuracy generalize across contexts? Like if you learn, if you get better at introspecting in one type of choice context, does it generalize to other contexts? Um, what are the downstream effects of that? Like, does it help you control your own thought, your own decisions better? Um, it's a whole host of questions that I think you can, that come after that, yeah. That's all very exciting. Thank you very much for your time, Adam. Thank you so much for having me on here, Adam. This is wonderful.